in Jewish history and celebrate it every single year. So as I said, this is Thursday of the Passion Week, of Passover Week. And it is the day that all of the Jewish people in Jerusalem would sacrifice a Passover lamb just as they did during the time of Exodus. They would take the meat from the lamb that they had just sacrificed and then they would prepare it and they would celebrate the Passover meal that Thursday evening. And so in verse 12, the first day of unleavened bread, which just refers to another celebration during Passover that also harkens back to the Exodus, the disciples have sacrificed their Passover lamb and they were now looking for where they would prepare it and where they would eat the Passover meal. And so they, they come to Jesus and they, they ask him, hey, we got, we got the meat, we got, we got half of it done, We're all set. we are all set on that front, but, but where are we going to go? Where are we going to go to actually eat this meal? We can't haul this thing around everywhere. And Jesus answers by sending out two disciples and saying in verses 13 through 15, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. So now, if you remember at this point, Jerusalem is completely packed. Jerusalem was the, was the epicenter for the Passover week. And so hundreds of thousands of people were jammed into this one city for Passover. And the only descriptor that Jesus gives his disciples is to, hey, go out and find a guy carrying a jar. A little rough, right? To us, it kind of seems like Jesus was telling them to go out and say, hey, look for a guy wearing a shirt. He's the one you need to follow. He'll lead you to the right spot. But actually, in that time, it was exceptionally rare for a man to be seen carrying a water jar. And it was typically something regulated to women, unless you were from a specific sect in Judaism. And so this guy would have actually stuck out like a sore thumb. And so whether it was out of divine knowledge or Jesus happened to make these arrangements beforehand, in verse 16, amazingly but unsurprisingly, everything happened precisely as Jesus said it would. Now, have you ever wondered why Jesus decided to do it this way? Why he couldn't just lead them himself to where they were going to go. No one knew where they would be eating the Passover meal, and the two disciples that Jesus sent out didn't even know where they were going until the guy that they were following led them to the house, and, and the master of the house led them to the upper room. They had no idea. Well, now, this is speculation, an educated guess, I could say, but I believe this is showing yet again the sovereign plan of God working itself out. As we will read in just a moment, Jesus was well aware of the nefarious schemes of Judas. He knew that he was planning to betray him, but nothing, nothing happens outside of God's timeline. Nothing. 
And so I believe that Jesus kept the location of where they were having the Passover meal a secret so that Judas would not be able to tell the religious authorities and have Jesus arrested during the meal, because that would have been the perfect time. Jesus would have been in this one room, kind of locked away. It would have been the perfect time for them to come and arrest him. But Jesus had very important things to do before his arrest. Very important things to do. And so I believe that Jesus went about showing the disciples where they would be having the Passover meal in this peculiar way so that everything continued to happen by his divine schedule. But again, somewhat of an educated guess. But the narrative then fast forwards a bit. And Jesus and his 12 closest disciples have arrived in the upper room. And they've begun the Passover meal, and as they are reclining at the table, which is how they partook in meals in that time, Jesus says something that somewhat kind of kills the celebratory mood that they were having during this Passover meal that was supposed to be this celebration, this memorial, this great exodus out of Egypt. He says in verse 18, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, without a doubt, Judas's ears were burning at this point. As I mentioned before, Jesus was not unaware of his betrayal. And the Gospels are, are brimming with passages of Jesus knowing what is going on in the hearts and the minds of those around him. And so it really should not come to to any real surprise to us that he would be aware of what was going on in Judas's heart and in Judas's mind. Yet verse 19 says that all of the disciples, every single one of them, all 12, well, probably 11 of the 12 at least, became sorrowful. And they started to worry if Jesus was talking about them personally. And ironically, within one day's time, they all, in their own way, would betray Jesus, right? And so the answer to that, is it I, Jesus, is actually, yes, <laughs> you will betray me. They would run and hide and cower in fear as their Messiah was hanging on the cross. Their betrayal would come. However, his words in verse 20 kind of make it apparent that, that he wasn't speaking, or that he was, rather, speaking specifically of Judas. Just Judas in this moment. Because he says, it is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now, I want you to notice something that Jesus does not do in this moment. He doesn't identify Judas as his betrayer. Right? He doesn't have the other disciples grab hold of Judas and keep him from doing what he is going to do. He doesn't, he doesn't do anything to, to stop him, to keep him from leaving, to, to keep him from going back to the religious authorities. He doesn't do anything. And we see why in verse 21, where it says, For the Son of Man which is a messianic title from Daniel 9, goes as it is written. So you see, friends, everything was going according, yet again, to the sovereign plan of God. 
Jesus coming to this earth, living the perfect life, even, even being betrayed and dying on the cross was always the divine, sovereign plan of God. The cross wasn't plan B. Judas's betrayal wasn't some just random thing that happened. In fact, Peter in Acts 2.23 in his sermon to the Jewish council says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up, and listen, listen closely here, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. All of this was going according to plan. Even the betrayal of Judas. This was always God's definite plan. It was even prophesied and written beforehand in passages such as Psalm 55, foreshadowing the betrayal of Jesus at the hands of Judas in Isaiah 53, which prophesies that Jesus would be a suffering servant who would die for the sins of many. Nothing, not even his betrayal, was outside of the sovereign plan of God. And yet, despite this, in a, a divine mystery that we cannot hope to understand this side of glory, and maybe even on the other side of glory, even though people and, and very brilliant theologians have tried all throughout the centuries, it does not negate that jo Judas still chose to betray his master. And every ounce of guilt and shame for that sin was his to bear. Now how that sovereign plan that sovereign control of God over all things and, and human freedom mixed together, we can't know. And so was Judas's betrayal sovereignly planned? Absolutely. Was Judas guilty and responsible for betraying Jesus? Absolutely. We must affirm both. Scripture teaches both. Verse 21 continues by saying, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas would experience the justice and judgment and wrath of God for his sake. Now, the theme of this next section of verses, 22 through 25, could actually somewhat be summed up with the phrase out with the old and, and in with the new. Or actually maybe better, but far less catchy, is the completion of the old and in with the new. Verse 22 seems to fast forward the scene yet again, and we see that they have begun eating once more. And here Jesus departs from the usual liturgy that accompanied the Passover meal. And he actually does something rather scandalous here that would actually be blasphemous for someone other than God to do. And he infuses new meaning into the Passover meal. And you realize this, this was a capital offense. Just, just right here. And he begins with the bread. Verse 22 says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take this 
is my body. We see in Luke's gospel that Jesus says, this is my body given for you. And yet again, Jesus is foreshadowing his coming death. Because he will, he will soon subject his human body to immense suffering. Again, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells the disciples, I eagerly, I, I deeply desire, would actually be a better translation, but I eagerly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Though not a bone in his body would be broken in order to fulfill prophecy, he would soon undergo such severe pain and bodily torment at the hands of the Jewish authorities, and then, and then most brutally by the Roman soldiers. Now remember, the bread that Jesus is breaking at this moment is without leaven. It's without leaven. And often, leaven in Scripture is symbolic of sin. Such as when Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees in Matthew 16. And here, Jesus is equating this unleavened bread with His body, reminding His disciples and us that Jesus, in His humanity, just as in His deity, was absolutely, completely without sin. He was completely innocent. He was, he was without spot or blemish. And this perfect, sinless, innocent God-man was about to allow His body to be torn so that those who place their faith in Him can be healed. We all need healing, don't we? All of us. I was away at a retreat with several pastors from all over New England earlier this week, and one theme that kept coming up as we were all sharing about ourselves and our call to ministry was, was simply, we were all, in, in some way or another, broken men. All of us. We were broken men who only by the grace of Jesus were being used for His glory. Our sin has broken us in a more real way than we can ever comprehend. It has broken our hearts. It has broken our emotions, our mental capacities, even our bodies. And adding to that is the brokenness that we have experienced as others have sinned, sometimes horrendously, against us. There's so much brokenness inside of us. Even if you feel like right now you have it all together. You don't. But here Jesus is saying that He is giving His body over to suffer so that, as Isaiah 53 says, by His stripes, by the stripes that will be carved into His back by the whips of the Roman soldiers, by those stripes we may be healed. We may be healed body and soul. Completely and to the uttermost. And that's what, that's what sanctification is all about. 
That is what our growing in Christ's likeness is all about. As we are conformed to the image of Christ, Jesus is taking us broken vessels in so many ways and healing us bit by bit. A healing that will be complete when He returns. A healing that that not only touches our souls, but even our bodies will be made new. Oh, praise God. That is the new meaning Jesus infuses into this place. Next is the cup. In verses 23 through 24, Jesus, he says, took a cup. When he had given thanks... He gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for me. Do you remember a few minutes ago how I said that the old covenant in the Old Testament was, was imperfect and not meant to last? Do you remember me saying that? How it, how it required more and more sacrifices to cover the ongoing sin of God's people. Do you remember me saying that? Well, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, the prophet Jeremiah prophesies of a coming new covenant, of a a better covenant, one in which all of the people of God will know Him in this this new and and deeper way. And in this covenant, God, listen, God, God will remember the sins of His people no more. No more. Never. And Jesus here is saying, I have come to usher in this new covenant. This new relationship Jeremiah prophesied of. I'm here. I'm bringing it. But look again. What did Jesus say exactly the new cup, or this cup now represented? He said, this is the blood. The blood of the covenant. Brothers and sisters, are you you catching what he is saying here? Are you seeing the connection? He is saying, in effect, that I am the Passover. This whole meal that you have been participating in has been pointing to me. I am the new Passover lamb. And it will be through my sacrifice on the cross, through my pouring out of my lifeblood that I will lead you into a greater exodus. Through what I will do on the cross, I will rescue you out of your sin and out of the domain of darkness. Brothers and sisters, if you put your faith in me and repent of your sins, it is like the blood of Jesus Christ has been painted on the doorposts of your heart so that the wrath and judgment that we all deserve from God will pass over you. And you are brought into the new covenant. Not just that, but into a new loving embrace with the God of the universe. And soon when he returns, we will enter into the ultimate promised land. Friends, I feel like you don't have to ask this question, but how how beautiful is that? How we we sin against him daily. We, like the disciples, we betray him constantly. 
when we desperately need the blood of an innocent to die in our place. But instead of an unending parade of imperfect sacrifice, God provided the perfect sacrifice. He provided the perfect sacrificial lamb. He provided His own Son that died as our substitute. That is the meaning Jesus has now given us. I'll just say a little bit of tidbit of information for you. There were four cups used during the Passover meal. The first cup represented rescue from Egypt. The second was freedom from slavery. And the third was redemption by God's power. And the fourth, a renewed relationship with God. Now, most biblical scholars believe that it was this third cup, the redemption by God's power, Jesus had in his hand. And indeed, by his blood, we have been redeemed. Now, this was the last true Passover ever taken. From then on, when the disciples and all the Christians throughout church history would meet to partake of the bread and wine, they would be participating in what Jesus now instituted. They would be participating in the Lord's Supper, also called communion, or even sometimes, if you're feeling fancy, the Eucharist, which simply means thanksgiving. Now, with what time I have left, I want to just briefly speak about what exactly we are doing each week when we partake in the Lord's Supper. It is such a rich and beautiful time, but it can also be one in which there can be some confusion of what's actually happening. Now, at the outset, I will say that that we at Redeemer Church reject what is called transubstantiation. And I know that's that's a mouthful. In short, it is the Catholic view that when we partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper, we are literally eating the body and blood of Jesus. And there's there's more that goes into it than that, but just kind of as as a brief general understanding of it. But I will say that we reject that. As we say every week, the elements, the, the, the wine or, or juice uh, and bread are symbols of the body and blood of Jesus. And so what are we doing when we partake in the Lord's Supper? Well, let me quickly break it down into three parts of past, present, and future. First is the past. Scripture gives no clear commandment of how often we should, we should partake in the Lord's Supper, but Jesus does tell his disciples in Luke twenty-two nineteen that when they eat of this meal together, they are to do it in remembrance of him. And so first, it is a memorial. It is a time for us to look back in wonder. In wonder. Have you ever, have you ever thought about that? How much wonder we lose as we grow older and, and slightly less jaded by the world, or slightly more jaded, I'm not really sure how to use that word, more or less, more, more jaded, jade, I don't know. When you become jade. <laughs> anyway, uh, we lose a lack of wonder in what God has done. And so this is a time for us to look back in wonder, in celebration, of the immense sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf on the cross 
where He bore all of the guilt of our sin upon Himself and poured out His blood so that we may be forgiven. And so, so that is the first thing we are doing when we partake in the Lord's Supper. Simple enough, right? Now second is the present. Now this portion has been rife with controversy all throughout church history. And I will spare all of you from that now, but just know it is not because I want to spare you from that. Because believe me, I would love nothing more than to geek out with some church history right now, but I would really prefer you all stay awake for the rest of the sermon. So I will not go into it. But let me just tell you what I believe is happening as we are taking this memorial meal. First, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so what Paul is saying here is that when we partake in the Lord's Supper as believers, we're actually proclaiming the gospel. It's a, it's a public declaration of the gospel. We're essentially acting out a drama that points others to the cross, to the death of Christ. And so that is one thing we are doing. We are, we are proclaiming the gospel. But I do not believe that is all that is happening presently as we partake in Supper. Now, what was one of the other names for the Lord's Supper that I used earlier? Specifically the one that started with a C. Meaning, there we go, all right. Well, it got its name due to 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17, where Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? In the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, the Greek word used for participation is the word koinonia. Koinonia. Now, a better translation, I believe, than participation would be the word fellowship or communion. So what Paul is saying is that in some mysterious way, Christ is present in the Lord's Supper, but not in a physical sense, but in a real and spiritual sense. Remember, Jesus' human body is in heaven right now, right? At the right hand of God, and he is truly human, meaning his body does not have the divine characteristics of omnipresence being everywhere at one time. Meaning that his human body can't be in more than one place at a time. He is truly human. However, we believe that Christ is present spiritually with us at the Lord's Supper. And he is communioning, fellowshipping with us in his deity when we partake in the Lord's Supper. And as we fellowship with him in this mysterious spiritual way. He nourishes our souls with the blessings He achieved on our behalf through His sacrifice on the cross. Charles Spurgeon said this about the real spiritual presence of Christ in communion. I think this is important because sometimes when we hear the word spiritual, we confuse it with the word metaphorical. Right? Maybe, maybe not real. But for us as, as believers, as Christians, we, we believe that the spiritual is just as, if not more, real than the physical. So, 
Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, by spiritual, we do not mean unreal. In fact, the spiritual takes the lead in realness to spiritual men. I believe in the true and real presence of Jesus with his people. Such presence has been real to my spirit. Jesus, thou thyself hast visited me. As surely as the Lord came really as to his flesh to Bethlehem and Calvary, so surely does he come really by his spirit to his people in the hours of their communion with him. So I know that all of this sounds a bit confusing. But the main takeaway is that the Lord's Supper is what Christian theology calls a means of grace. A means of grace. A means by which God gives grace and blessing to His people. Think about it kind of like this. Just as we are nourished and brought into closer relationship with Jesus through reading our Bible in a mysterious way that we can't fully comprehend or wrap our minds around because, because there is still mystery within Scripture. The same thing happens as we partake in communion. Jesus calls Himself the bread of heaven. And when we partake of, of communion, we truly get to feast and be nourished by the bread of heaven. Now lastly is the future aspect of the Lord's Supper. Which brings us to the last verse of our passage. Jesus says in verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now brothers and sisters, do you did you know that even now, that this Lord's Supper that we're actually going to partake in, in just a few moments, is still yet another foreshadowing of another greater and more perfect and more complete feast that we will partake in with Jesus. There will come a time where just like the Passover, the Lord's Supper will no longer be needed because it will be replaced with the great wedding feast of the Lamb that we see in John's grand vision in Revelation 19. Let me, let me read it to you. This is Revelation 19, beginning in verse 6. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be a, be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, that we are uh, Christ's bride. We are Christ's bride as His body. And Christ is the bridegroom. And this is talking about the final marriage between us and Christ. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And brothers and sisters, if you are a believer in this room, that is you. You have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so in this final book of the New Testament, we have the opportunity to see a glimpse into the future. 
Here John sees the marriage feast of the Lamb that is ready for his bride, the church. And there will come a day when all who are faithful to Christ will be gathered together in heaven for this joyous celebration, for this marriage to Christ, which will be marked by a feast that will surpass anything that this world could ever imagine. I'm stealing this from a wonderful book Sproul wrote on the Lord's Supper here. But Jesus, in our passage in Mark 14, verse 25, he calls attention to the future. And that there still remains a grand celebration that is coming. And every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper in this world, we shouldn't only look back to Christ's past accomplishments, but to the future feast that is yet to still be fulfilled. In the words of R.C. Sproul, there is still more of the kingdom of God for us to experience. We have experienced the inauguration of the kingdom in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, but we still await the final, future consummation of the kingdom. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we see that it's not just a sign of what has already happened, but it is also a sign and seal of what will happen. Praise God. I want to conclude this sermon kind of the way that I did last week by praying a hymn. This hymn was written by Bodie Bauckham. And if you haven't listened to or read anything by this giant of the faith, man, write his name down and get on. So if you will, please pray with me. This hallowed ground we consecrate with sorrow turned to praise. For Christ our sin and shame did take and full atonement made. The moment sinless deity was cursed upon the tree and His perfect obedience set guilty captives free. So here our cup to Him we raise, a covenant of blood. For God the Son our ransom paid when in our place He stood. And here the bread again we break and eat this common meal. For by our Savior's sacred wounds, our fatal wounds were healed. And so this ground we consecrate, not with mere bread and wine, but with our hearts and heads and hands and lives to Him resigned. Remember then and celebrate His body and His blood, as here by faith our souls partake of Christ as holy food.